Welcome back to Serious Epidemiology, everybody. This is Matt Fox from Boston University, and I am here releasing the first ever Serious Epidemiology bonus episode. So as you know, if you've subscribed by now, that we are planning to release these podcasts once a month on the 15th of the month. But every once in a while, we will have a bonus episode that we are able to release uh, and we'll release those on the first of the month when we have them. This may be the only one for all I know, but this time what we're going to do is we're going to release a journal club, an online journal club that we did back in June during the week of SCR. It was a conversation with uh, Dr. Jonathan Jackson from Johns Hopkins and Dr. Anya Bachira from UCLA, and it was a really interesting conversation. And so we recorded it, and with their permission, we're going to release it to you now. Enjoy. Welcome everyone. Um, my name is Haley Bannock from the University at Buffalo and I'm co-hosting this journal club with Matt Fox uh, from Boston University. Um, I wish we could all be together at SER in Boston today, but um, since that is not happening at the moment, uh, the next best thing we could think of is all coming together um, on Zoom to talk about um, causal inference and social epidemiology um, and share some thoughts uh, on that topic. So today we'll be talking about several papers on social epidemiology and causal inference that were published in a March 2020 issue of the American Journal of Epidemiology. So joining us today, we have two very special guests who co-authored one of the papers that were included in that issue of AJE, Dr. Oni Ara from the UCLA Fielding School of Public Health and Dr. John Jackson from the Bloomberg School of Public Health at Johns Hopkins. So thank you very much for joining us today to both of you. Thanks for having us. Um, before we get started, uh, just a few housekeeping related issues. Um, this Zoom meeting is going to be recorded um, so we can post it on the SER website um, as well as hopefully share it in, in podcast form. So um, the way we have set it up is anyone who would like to get in on the discussion, please use the hand raising function uh, near the bottom and uh, you raise your hand and we will unmute you to ask your question and participate in the discussion. But just know uh, if you are doing that, your voice will be recorded. Um, so everyone is muted for now and then uh, later on if you'd like to chime in please just uh, go through that process. Um, okay so as we often do in this journal club uh, we are going to be going through a very quick um, intro kind of slides about what was in the articles and then uh, we will jump into a, a more interactive type of discussion but um, we don't assume that everyone has read all of these articles or maybe um, you've skimmed them or, or you just wanted to join in the conversation today so um, i'm just going to be presenting a very high level overview there's a lot of information and a lot of detail that I won't be covering in this short presentation, but we just wanted to give you a, a quick rundown. So um, I will share my screen. Share. Can you guys see that? Mm -hmm. the, oh, yep. There we go. Okay, so the topic of today is social epidemiology and causal inference for our journal club. I'm Haley and I'm co-hosting it with Matt. Uh, this is the journal uh, issue from March 2020, and you can see up at the top here, they have this great box highlighting all of the uh, editorials um, and commentaries that were written uh, on this particular topic. The first um, 
commentary that was published in this series um, was directly related to the Castle Lecture that was presented last year at SER. And I don't know uh, if many of you remember, but it was Sandro Galea and Miguel Hernan, and they were discussing um, this topic of reconciling social epidemiology causal inference. And uh, their written commentary based on this lecture talks about how causal inference should be a key task for social epidemiology. And there are some tensions between social epidemiology and causal inference, and these are um, largely based on some misconceptions. And they identify three misconceptions. The first um, is that there's a misconception that social exposures are qualitatively different than any other exposure that we examine in causal inference and gets to play by some kind of different rule. So they are saying this is a misconception. The next misconception they identify is that the primary or the sole goal of causal inference is to identify causes. If I'm understanding their argument correctly, um, they are claiming that the goal of causal inference is estimating causal effects, which is slightly different than identifying causes. And the third misconception is that causal inference requires that all exposures um, be able to be experimentally manipulated. And they say this is a misconception. Um, and this is part of the tension of why it is hard to uh, study causal inference in social epidemiology because many exposures that we think of in social epidemiology are very difficult, if not impossible, to manipulate. So they, they say that this is another misconception. And the end of their commentary focuses on a, a suggested way forward. And they focus on this idea that social exposures exist on a sort of spectrum, a causal spectrum is what they call it. And there are some exposures that are more amenable to studying in ca for causal effects um, than others. And, and they say that the implications of this are we should prioritize um, actionable causal inference we should think about developing and, and the methods that we use to answer these questions and thinking about the concept of, of well-defined causal effects in social epidemiology, but also more broadly in causal inference. So that's a, a summary of the Galea and Hernan commentary. The next commentary was written by Whitney Robinson and Zinzi Bailey, um, and they are basically responding to some of these misconceptions that Sandro Galea and Miguel Hernan identify. So the first um, response that they have is that um, in the Hernan, sorry, in the Galea and Hernan uh, commentary, they say that. Um, individual level medical treatments and behaviors and biomarkers are easier to study than some other types of social exposures. And Whitney and Zinzi are making the argument that these are not equivalent concepts, right? These are, are two sets of different exposures and it's very hard to compare the first kind of types of individual level exposures with the second. And, and that is a problem, um, a primary problem for causal inference in social epidemiology. The second uh, response that they have is that a common goal in social epidemiology um, is to establish or rule out causation. And this is something that 
Ani and John also talk about in their paper is about uh, ruling out potential causes. And so their response to sort of Whitney and Zinzi's response to um, Galay and Hernan is that actually in social epidemiology, we do want to look for causes. Um, so that's in response to the second misconception. And the third misconception is about the importance of subject matter expertise when you're studying social uh, dynamics and the fact that context really matters. The broader world we are living in, the broader environments that we are living in have a tremendous impact uh, when you are trying to study social epidemiology. And so just examining something on an individual level or, or boiling it down to this very downstream um, exposure may not be what um, what we want to do in social epidemiology. So those are their three main points. And um, the other thing that they comment on is, is this way forward that Galea and Hernan proposed. And they're not a very big fan in my interpretation of this idea of the spectrum. And the idea that um, because it's easier potentially to study income, we should be moving right on that spectrum because potentially it's a easier or less complicated or more manipulable type of exposure rather than studying race uh, as a construct which is very difficult to study. So just because something is potentially easier doesn't mean that we should focus on, on moving right on that spectrum. So that's the, the crux of, of Robinson and Bailey's article. The next one um, is by Tyler Vanderweel. And um, he also, he, he agrees in, with many points about the misconceptions that Galea and Hernan identify. <laughs> Excuse me. But he also talks about the fact that th this idea of the spectrum is also problematic. And, you know, boiling things down to their simplest um, aspects doesn't leave room for causal inference for complex, um, you know, exposures like race or social movements. And so he's not a big fan of this spectrum idea either, like Zinzi and uh, Whitney were. So Vanderweel has three proposals for how we can uh, remedy or, or, you know, move forward with this situation. So he talks about we should uh, think about redefining our exposure. So if you're interested in studying race, potentially, really it's, it's not the color of your skin necessarily that someone is interested. It's about um, discrimination or perceptions of race or some kind of manipulable factor that's associated with race, like um, educational opportunities. So he, he's also talking about modifying the exposure a little bit to get at a more answerable question. The other proposal, the next proposal he has is the idea of separating the exposure from plausible hypothetical interventions. So he gives this example um, of changing affirmative action policies uh, for entrance into university. So there's um, some places there are race-based affirmative action policies. Um, and what would happen if you change those to an SES-based affirmative action policy? So this would be a way of examining the effect of race within these policies um, in a manipulable type of way because you can't change someone's race to look at the effect of manipulating that variable, but you can change a policy related to race. So he talks about separating out those two concepts of the exposure and the intervention. 
And the third um, idea that he has, the proposal, is allowing for a distribution of interventions, which he calls a composite exposure. Um, so there are many different interventions that you could think about um, to intervene upon a variable like social cohesion, right? So there are many different interventions you can study, and considering those different interventions is the third uh, possible proposal that he has. So that is what Vanderweel brings to the table. And then finally, uh, we have the commentary by Jackson and Ara, uh, our two special guests today. Um, and so they, are they talk about this idea of an impasse between uh, causal inference and social epidemiology. And the decision uh, that we are really faced with is what interventions should we be addressing? And importantly, how should we be addressing those types of interventions? So um, I really liked what they said about causal methods provide a step away um, from association and you're moving towards causation by ruling out uh, alternative explanations. And this is again something that uh, Whitney and Zinzi talked about in their commentary. Another topic that they discuss is this idea of making causal inference more socially engaged. So potentially bringing in methods from other fields like system science to think about broader social factors rather than boiling it down to the simplest possible thing that we can study, let's say income. Um, we want to go in the opposite direction and think more broadly uh, by collaborating with other folks in, in other domains. And the next is a, uh, idea that they have for making this more socially engaged is examining our data collection paradigm. So really thinking about can the data we have on uh, social factors or, or, you know, to answer our social epidemiology questions, can they actually answer the questions that we want to answer? And this is something that um, doesn't just apply to social epidemiology. Um, it applies to basically all epidemiology. But um, I think in social epidemiology, there are very unique data sources um, that are used. And sometimes those are not the best data sources to answer a particular question that someone has. Even if they really want to answer that question, you can only answer it if your data you know, has measures that allow you to answer that. So I thought that was a really excellent point that none of the other authors had raised. And then finally, they have this quote near the end, and I just thought this really resonated with me. Um, and it says, to move forward, we challenge social epidemiology and causal inference researchers to consider the following. <laughs> How can we work together to define specify and evaluate hypothetical interventions of consequence and ultimately translate them into actual interventions, even in the face of uncertainty. And this, why it resonated with me so much is that there are people with expertise in different domains in epidemiology. And this is a call for us to put our heads together and work together to solve these problems and move forward, even if you have uncertainty, even if there's not gonna be a perfect solution, we can move this domain forward by working together. So I thought that was just a really nice way um, to end off the, the commentary series. So that's all I have um, for the slide overview. So um, I think now I'm going to turn it over to Matt and he is going to start off the discussion uh, with our two guest guests. Terrific, thanks for that, that introduction, that overview. Haley, which was excellent, and, and thank you to 
John and Oni for these, these, this really nice commentary. I've got some questions that I want to ask, but of course, if there are questions that folks from the, from the audience have, again, just, just use the raise your hand button and we will try and uh, get you to, to unmute when the time is appropriate. But so just to start off, um, I want to start off just a little bit big picture um, in looking at the, the Galea and Hernan article. So they, they started off by talking about social epidemiology and they gave this definition. I'm not a social epidemiologist, so it was helpful to me to read these definitions. They say that social epidemiology is, being, is everything that's being concerned with the health effects of forces that are above the skin, individual behaviors, interactions with others, characteristics of neighborhood environments, domestic policies and global trends that may shape the health populations are within the remit of social epidemiology. And then in their response, Dr. Robinson and Bailey say they prefer Hanjo's definition of social epidemiology, which says that social epi is concerned specifically with the health effects of social institutions, structures, relationships, and dynamics over time. And John, I'll start with you. Do either of these definitions resonate with you? And, and can you talk a little bit about why one of those or another definition might be preferable? Uh, sure. So. Um... I guess not to be overly uh, diplomatic, but I actually see a value in both definitions. Um, and you know, and it's hard for me to, to say that there's one singular definition that would encompass all of social epi, but the reason why I like them both is, um, you know, the, the one that Galea and Hernan talk about really um, pushes our, our gaze above the skin. And I think often in epi, we're very tied with biomedicine um, which, you know, focuses on biomarkers and attempts to manipulate the body uh, to improve health without, you know, sometimes losing sight of all the things outside of the body that can be done to impact the body. And I think what I like about um, Robinson and Bailey's um, response to that is that, you know, it brings it back full circle to say all of those things that, you know, we experience outside of um, the body in our, in our life actually are expressed in the body, this whole notion of embodiment. And so I think you put the two together and it's really holistic. Um, I think in my own work, I tend to think about a lot about how um, our lived experience, how society, how structures sort of shape the distribution of risk. And, you know, and I think a lot of my work um, looks at social epi in, in that lens. So like things that, you know, we've done the epidemiology for, we understand what the impacts are like in a general level, but for some reason, certain groups are doing worse than others, right? And so like, you know, how do social factors sort of um, govern that, that system? And so that's sort of how I approach it. Now that leaves aside other aspects of social epi that are like, you know, direct impacts on health through like stress or through network effects and things like that. Um, but, you know, I, I tend to think of it as sort of how is marginalization sort of encoded into our society and, you know, what can we do about that? That's sort of where my sort of lens comes in. Fantastic. Ondi, anything you would, you would add to that? Yeah, what he said. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, that's the beauty of epidemiology, isn't it? You know, that... Um, uh, most of what we do, you can summarize as, it, it depends on where you're looking at. It depends on where you find yourself. Um, it, I think the most important part of any definition of social epidemiology is that you are interested in the social. 
that's it. You know, um, uh, of course, like John pointed out, you might find that if you look into the social epi literature, especially the very nice ones, uh, uh, you will find that is the the hunger approach that you're going to find a lot because social things tend to be collective. Very few of us are in charge of our social. You, why are we on Zoom right now? Did you decide to be on Zoom? Um, no. <laughs> there you go. Um, so, but you know, but definitions are useful. Yeah. Um, I hope you're enjoying the, my toddler performance. <laughs> anyway, um, but so I, I think it, it is important to realize that both definitions do apply. What is important, like, uh, is what um, Robinson uh, Bailey did point out, and that is we cannot reduce the social epidemiology or the social focus to an individualization uh, um, a campaign where it's about the individual. Um, like I said, very few things, the more I think about it, very few things that happen to us socially are entirely, due to, uh, entirely within my control or within our control. There are things we share with others, there are things that are done to us, there are things that we can't escape fully, there are things we must comply with, you know, um, and that's social epidemiology. It's interested in those mechanisms, those institutions, those systemic things, those systematic things, those collective things. In a sense, social epidemiology is very close to what we understand as public health. Um, it is a, a critical backbone of what we call public health today. Now, why am I, I tend towards that conjure approach? It, I, from a disciplinary perspective is if I stay too close to the Galea Hernan approach, I am doing all of epi. When you think about it, that definition is all of epi. That's what epi does. And if, you know, um, do we want to say social epi uh, is all of epi? Oh yeah, personally I would say yes, all, all epi is social. <laughs> but uh, so that, that would be my take. You would find that we're, the important thing is to focus on the social and remember that uh, social epidemiology is more concerned with the collective things that happen and the things that you know operate at that level. And so let me let me build on that. And I'm going to come back to you, Oni, um, to start. So in the Galea and Hernan paper, they say that causal inference should be a key task for social epidemiology. And both you and and John have made really important contributions in the areas of of. Of, of causal inference, and I'm so I'm curious whether you would agree with that statement, and you know, is there more that we should should think of social epidemiology as having as goals? Oni, was that? Is that you want me to take that? Yeah, you take yeah. that. All right, all right. Take I thought that John was going to take that. Okay. No, I'll come back to John in a minute. All right. I, so, yeah, um, a, a key task. Um, I'll agree with the sentence. I'll change the task to tool. It should be a key tool. Um, the, the, the end game for social epidemiology is not causal inference per se, but to actually contribute evidence to making uh, a difference. Um, so when causal inference becomes the key task of what you do, you're a causal inference researcher. Uh, some of us who do social epi are causal inference researchers, but uh, um, so I would only I'll alter that sentence by saying it's a, a, a critical tool 
that can be used by social epidemiologists, uh, uh, by all epidemiologists actually, but that the things that social epidemiologists are interested in and do uh, must extend beyond just telling me, oh, that social condition does kill people. Um, they, <laughs> wow, gee, um, what can we do about it? You know, social epidemiology is interested in what can we do about it? Who can do something about it? At what level? Uh, what will be the mechanisms involved? What will be the other on uh, intent, both intended and unintended consequences of acting? What are the, in what context can we actually deploy some of these things? Who are affected? These are the all kinds of things that social epidemiology must deal with beyond just thinking that clean causal inference tools and tasks that you've conducted. It's like, uh, in fact, if causal inference, to me, the way I look at it, if you inference tasks of computing causal estimates, it's like putting a perfectly good computer in a, in a nice store or, or address or whatever you like um, without anybody telling you how much it costs, how you're going to use it, nothing, you're just sitting right there and, you know, um, that's not enough. You got to tell people what it is, um, how much it's going to cost, who's going to pay for it, uh, what, how do you actually use it, you know. Um, so I think that's where social epi comes in and goes further than just producing estimates. And, and, and John, would you, would you add anything to that? And specifically, I'm curious, what, do you think there is a tension between social epidemiology and, and causal inference? Um, I, so those are two questions uh, to me. And I guess maybe I'll, uh, I guess, you know, we may get to the, the last question later on. But um, I, I mean, first, I would say that um, I think that building off what Oni said about making social epi uh, useful, um, I think we can all agree that, you know, our current pandemic has really taught us how relevant social epi is mm -hmm. for public health. I mean, I think social epi should really be, you know, hopefully there's a window now for social epi to influence surveillance. And this is, you know, related to something that we tried to point out in the commentary. But I mean, if you think about it, it took um, equity researchers demanding that this data be, be uh, made available. Um, you know, for the first few weeks of the pandemic, this was playing out in a very unequitable way. Um, and it wasn't known, you know, except for a few places. And, you know, what really uh, makes me, um, you know, when you think about that, like, you know, before COVID, how many other inequities are, you know, playing out around the world that we just don't know about? Um, you think about, there are some countries where ethnicity and, and race aren't really even measured. Um, you know, in, in um, insurance claims and EMR data, sometimes it's not really measured that well. Um, and so, you know, I think there are a lot of lost opportunities to see, you know, where the burden is greatest and where, you know, we can do um, a lot of good. Um, and, and I think, you know, that includes like, you know, measures of social position, but I think it also includes all the other aspects of social epi, like so psychosocial stressors, adverse experiences. Um, various different measures of, of identity, um, you know, all of these things, um, documenting features of social institutions and social environments in a real dynamic sense, um, I think are things that social epi can lead the way on and, and probably should. Um, and, and, and again, I think social epi has a lot to say about intervention and policy development, like, uh, like, like Oni was alluding to. It's not just enough to say what the effects of certain 
exposures are, but really helping us wrestle with, you know, how do we translate this in, into action and uh, into practice. And, and so I think, you know, um, yeah, I think that's how I would answer your question. You know, do I see a tension between causal inference and social epi? Um, I think, you know, um, I, I, would, I would say that I, I, it's hard to answer that in one sentence. I think, you know, um, Zinzi and um, Whitney said it, you know, right in that, you know, the causal inference was sort of, you know, developed under certain areas. Um, and so, I, you know, I sort of, I, I, it's not that I see a, um, a tension per se, I just think that the methods haven't really um, sought to answer all of the questions that social epi is wrestling with. And so, John, to, to, to come back to you and build on this, um, you know, the, the Galea and Hernan paper basically talked about these exposures on a continuum. Um, yeah. And I, I wonder what your, your thought on that. I mean, they talk about focusing on actionable causal inference, just like you, you said, and they give the example of focusing on, on racism, not race as the target exposure. And I, I'm, I'm curious your reaction to, to that continuum that they've described and, and whether you think it helps move things forward or does it just sort of describe something that we already knew? Um, yeah, this is a tough one, um, you know, because, no, it's, it's just like, I was, yeah, because I was like, wow, this is a tough, you know, this is a tough one. So like, I think, so I, I, you know, I was trained in a, a couple of different fields, pharmacopoeia um, before I went to grad school, I was knee deep in, in, in health equity so I sort of see things in, in both ways. I mean, when I do have exquisite data sets and things like that, you know, I do try to focus on actions or changes in exposure um, just because it's less of a conceptual leap from the estimate to the potential impact. It's, it's really clean. Um, so for example, like, you know, one of the papers I, I worked on, we were interested in pharmacy access and we actually were able to look at the effects of pharmacy closures and we saw that it had profound effects on adherence. And so, I mean, I think you can get value about that, but, um, you know, taking the particular example in, um, in, in, in the commentary of moving from race um, to racism, I mean, I agree that like, I've never really been interested in the intervention of changing my own race or someone else's race as a way to, you know, um, solve health disparities. I don't, think it's, you know, I'm not a big proponent of the biological or constitutional hypothesis, um, you know, I, but moving forward to racism, <laughs> to study that is, is really challenging. Um, it's, it's what we need to do, but it's really challenging. I think it's challenging um, because, um, you know, to me, racism is ubiquitous. Um, it's everywhere. I mean, yeah. racism is structural. It exists in places where minorities don't even live. Um, you know, my family um, is in Portland, Oregon, and, you know, if you go to Portland, there's very few minorities, and, and, and that was by design. So if you had, you know, measures that were based around inequities to, to somehow measure structural racism there, you'd have to, you have to really think carefully about what it is that you're trying to capture. Um, and so I, I don't think it's, um, I don't think things become easier moving to the right of the spectrum when we think about, you know, intervening on things that are really built into society. Um, you know, what I think I've tried to do in my own work, which is not a panacea, 
is to you know focus on effects of racism so like how is risk differentially distributed and like really you know focus on um, hypothetical interventions around that and and i like that because it focuses on removing disparities um, not just sort of like universal interventions that we know historically have been you know un, unevenly rolled out or you know barriers come up that impact their effectiveness in differential ways so i really like the focus on removing disparities and what the effects of that are um, but you know i think you know there are still limitations with uh with that approach which we discuss um in in the commentary um so you know i i i, I so i mean just to you know go back to the original question i like to focus on actions when i can um but i, I don't think you can always do it um you know i think um you know whether or not you can do it well through system science I think, you know, is something that I think is probably possible, but under our current publishing paradigm and funding paradigm, I think it's difficult to do it well because, you know, to, to build models that could really focus on actions would take a lot of effort and a lot of time to do it well. It's not something you could really pump out in a year. You know, you'd have to do a lot of groundwork. Sounds like we, we, we need big change. We really need big systematic changes to be able to, to understand these things. Yeah. Uh, Matt, there's a few questions in the question box. Um, so let me just jump in in well, the okay. Q&A. I, I have the chat box open. That's why I'm not seeing them. So you oh, yeah. So, yeah, so let me just jump in for a moment. Um, so the first question um, is from Lorraine Dean. And she's saying, um, to play devil's advocate, if the interventions we need to resolve social challenges are distinct from what we might study as causes, example might be the tax redistribution policies, might be the intervention for disparities by income, how much does understanding causal associations really help us move public health forward in a consequential way? So I guess what she's, um, I guess what Lori, if I, Onya, did you? Yeah, so I, I'm, I'm not sure what, you know, um, what she's referring to as uh, what we might call causes. You mean the things that are non-social causes? Or um uh, or the things we typically study <clears throat> just because we focus on certain things that call them causes that doesn't mean that the other things we don't focus on are not causes you know um unless that she's referring to or maybe you say she's referring to um interventions or or, or issues that are large scale you know i think maybe she's talking about scale here i think so um, yeah yeah. Right. Okay. So interventions are on a large scale, and much of what we do is not large scale exposure or causes. Um, how much would that literature or that effort or that enterprise really help us? Uh, that's a fair question. If we're interested in changing society and we're talking small potatoes, um, what does that mean? What does that say about us and being interested in actually changing our social condition? and improving our outcomes collectively and being for everyone. When we say public health is for all, you know, we really mean everybody, not some. So when we are quiet or silent on these big social interventions, which by the way, is what our policymakers undertake every day with or without our support, 
and they do social stuff to us. They redistribute wealth. They, you know, tell us to stay home. They give or deny us infrastructure. These are all the things that affect us, whether we like it or not. They actually do these things. So when we're silent on those things, studying those things, we've taken aside. We've taken aside that we, those things don't matter to us. It doesn't mean those things are not important or they will go away because we focus on these smaller things. We just remove ourselves from the conversation. That's what it is. I think, I think if I could add to that, um, I think I understand the, the question now. I think the, the, the question is, you know, identifying like effects of uh, income or um, something like that. Is that really what we need to do when we really need to think about policy change? And I think in my opinion, this gets to back to what we were saying in the commentary is, you know, this is the impasse really is, um, you know, I think epidemiology, as I understand it, the paradigm is, you know, you, you sort of, you know, you, you identify what the causal agents are. And then, you know, the real question is how do you, you know, what do you do about it? Um, and, and, and that is, I think, something that we really need to really be more engaged in, in our field. I don't think that um, studying the effects of policies um, well, uh, first I want to say that that's helpful, but I think it's limited because um, it's the effect of, of a policy, but it's not the only policy that, that, that we could or should consider. Um, and so I think where I've kind of come down on this for now is, you know, when you can, um, you know, I think we should explore what we can do with um, system science models to see like what the effects of certain policy changes are. But I also think that we need to do a better job of you know, not stopping with our estimate, but also, you know, wrapping it, um, um, you know, seeing how, 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 how the things that we've identified are causal, like are, are, are embedded um, in society ecologically, you know, what barriers affect them um, to rely on theory um, and, and, and other things to sort of qualitatively figure out what policies or, 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 or interventions should look like. Yeah, no, I very much agree with that. And, and that is, you know, the crux of part of your discussion uh, in the commentary related to system science, which I, I thought was a great point. Um, another question also related to your commentary um, is from Anusha Babel. Um, can you talk about the measurement of social variables? I think there's a lot of work to do both theoretically and quantitatively on the measurement of social variables. The challenges with measurement impacts the use of quantitative methods, especially when using methods don't exploit exogenous variation. Yes, I do agree that we don't. <laughs> um, there's a, a particular challenge um, when it comes to measuring social variables. Since we're interested in the social condition and the context, it, it is the case that uh, we're interested in far more variables and far more information that you that someone who typically studies um, some health technology would. Um, um, so, for uh, social epidemiologists, they're in that um, uh, hard world where they have to. Um, make do with existing um, data sets or data sets that are collected for a bunch of other reasons, um, not for what you have in mind. And so when you begin to study, when you begin to tease apart uh, specific social factors, um, you might not have measured those factors 
appropriately what they should actually mean in, in the context you want to study. And you may not even have the context in which um, those factors actually have meaning. Um, you know, you, you can take race for example, when somebody is doing a study and actually they are interested in racism and all they have is this documentation of race, is that a good measure of racism or racialization or whatever experience you want to capture? Uh, so it is something about measurement error, but it's also something about incomplete measurement. You know, you know, you don't actually have the measurements you want in the first place. This is like one of the worst forms of measurement error you have because we want multiple factors, uh, multiple social factors, but that's the thing about social epic and uh, social conditions that you rarely are you interested in the one factor or maybe two or three factors together in a specific context. That that might be how these things are affected. It brings yeah. me back also to when you study social factors and social variables and you want them to inform policy and you want them to inform interventions, things that, that you might change, you've got to ask yourself who has the power, the leverage to change these things. Are you studying things that can actually change? It's nice to show up and say, oh, I've studied how income does so so and so, and the policymaker says, you know, I don't change people's incomes. I have no leverage over that, but I do have leverage over tax, uh, taxes, you know? Do you have something that can help me with that? Um, so it's, <laughs> it, it ties into measurements actually mapping into things that are of importance to the specific population you want to, you have in mind, the types of factors you're interested in and who has control over what. Yeah. And, and yeah, and I just want to end by saying, I really like, you know, I think the, um, I think that Anusha raises a, a really good point and it gets back to the data issues that we raised in the commentary. Um, you know, I think, I, I don't know, I, I think a good analogy is, you know, you look at, um, at genetic epidemiology, I mean, maybe 30 years ago, the level of fine mapping that we are able to do today, you know, you would have thought was be prohibitively expensive and almost impossible, but we invested in it and we found a way to do it. So, you know, I think that measuring um, dynamic phenomena that happen at a contextual level, um, it, it is possible if we, if, if, if we just put the resources behind it. And, you know, maybe that's, should be a key task for social epidemiology is to really get involved in that struggle and 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 really push our measures and also their um, their embeddedness into data streams um, to really to really make some ground there. I think that would really advance the field in in so many ways. Yeah, because you can't study this stuff without data to do so. Yeah. Right. And, and I mean, it's a fundamental problem in all of epidemiology, but a much more complex problem when you are thinking about social factors um, and broader social contexts as, as a, you know, exposure or outcome. I do want to turn back a little bit to, to the commentary that, that you both wrote, because I, I think there's some interesting points that I'd love to, to tease out. Um, so, so, Ponya, I'll start with you. So you, um, in your commentary, you say that um, when talking about different types of interventions, that you refer to, you say that oftentimes interventions that are being evaluated are what you refer to as system preserving. Can you, can you talk a little bit more about that, expand on what you mean by that and how we think about removing system, uh, move away from system preserving interventions to system changing interventions? Um, sure, um, Onye, did you, well. Yeah, go okay, yeah, so I, um, yeah, so that I think like um, what I meant, you know, when you look at that passage, 
um, I think what we were trying to say is that, you know, in the simplest case, if you look at the formulas that really underlie, like, you know, the, um, the causal range esti estimators that we use, you'll see like an expression and it says like, what's the distribution of the outcome given the exposures and the confounders or, or, or the risk factors. And, you know, one of the critical assumptions that we learn is consistency. Um, and there's, there's a corollary in the structural causal model but really, essentially, they say that, you know, if you intervene on that exposure or if you just observe it, it should be the same. And, um, you know, what that means, like in a, in a technical level from a graph, you know, one way that that, 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 that that distribution wouldn't change is that all the direct arrows into the outcome, you know, don't change in magnitude or sign as a result of the intervention that there are no new arrows added in from some new factor that arises and that there are no arrows taken away or blocked um, as a result of the intervention. It's a very atomic um, intervention. Um, and so, you know, I think the more that like you unpack it, it's actually kind of um, uh, terrifying because you realize that <laughs> most <laughs> interventions, even things that we would think about and not, you know, innocuous interventions, you know, you really do have to like cut some arrows out or add some arrows in to actually get this thing to work. Um, and so systems are almost never preserved um, when you actually implement interventions in practice. And, you know, I mean, one way is that the intervention actually does something good. So it's, you know, it actually changes the structure. But another bad thing is that the intervention, you know, um, that the world adapts to it. And you know the point that we made about equity is I mean you can look throughout history time and time again, every time you know that you know we we try to remove inequities um, through whatever strategy it's, it's really met with fierce opposition, uh, violence, um, barriers that you know it's 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 really pervasive. I mean people talk about this in terms of social reproduction, fundamental causes, um, but I I think the you know the thing is that we have to be really humble to, to just realize that when we, you know, mo most of the estimators that we use, like this is baked in. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think one of the things in the commentary that we want to say is it's just a challenge to say, how can we, you know, if we want to, you know, do policy relevant research about effects of actions, we have to really think about um, identification strategies that, you know, can come up with a hypothetical model for the outcome in, in, in this new hypothetical world. And, you know, I think that's really challenging, but I think it's something that would have to really rely heavily on theory and also other um, qualitative pieces of, of evidence to work. I don't, um, you know, um, one of the things that, that I hope, you know, I can sort of emphasize here is that, you know, qualitative um, approaches in epidemiology are really given short shrift. Um, I, you know, in our training and, and, and also in our um, promotion process and, and, and tenure process. And, you know, if you really want to think about, you know, moving beyond system preserving um, analyses and, 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 and interventions, those are the people who can actually help you think, think through that. The people who are doing real qualitative work, building relationships with communities and stakeholders. And, and you know, I think that has to be very much a part of, uh, of, of epidemiology. Um, it's actually really fantastic to hear somebody who is, you know, who I think of as has so much in the causal inference world to hear you say 
that put put that value on on qualitative um, research because I think often we think of them as diametrically opposed. When I I really appreciate your sentiment that they're not. Um, I want I want to just ask one more question, and then I do want to save some time at the end for um, the questions from the the from the folks in the who are listening about education. But Onya, I, I just wanted to ask you if, if in the commentary by Doctors Robinson and Bailey, they they noted something that, that hadn't really occurred to me, and I think I know why. They talked about the fact that the um, most of the tools of, of causal inference have actually been built uh, in response to very specific problems, and so much of it comes out of the world of HIV and, and pharmacoepi. And I think the reason why I didn't realize that is because I'm in the world of, of HIV. And I wonder whether you think that the causal inference is, ha hasn't actually built enough tools for, for social epidemiology, largely because we just haven't been creative enough. We haven't really spent the time to, to build these approaches. Um, and it isn't that they don't, they don't or couldn't exist. It's that we haven't really, you know, spent the time to make them. Right, right. That's true. They're absolutely right. Um, I actually love their commentary a lot. Um, and they hit so many points there. And that was one big point, um, you know, obviously when you have a hammer, um, you're gonna find a lot of nails um, around the place. Um, but, um, you know, I, I, I think the thing to realize is that even though a lot of the applications and a lot of the principles that work on this are use HIV or pharmacotherapy, um, that doesn't mean that we can't um, take some take those tools and actually apply them to bigger issues. You know, it, in a sense, you can understand why they were doing what they did, um, focusing on those other things, because there were things that were working on, that's one, obviously. Two, they're actually simpler. Yeah. Um, you know, when it ties back to what John was talking about, you know, system preserving, causal invariance, all those other things. Where in social epidemiology and things where the system reacts to everything you do, and pretty quickly too, and sometimes quite violently. Um, such that you have to adapt. These are big issues. They're not simple. Take this drug uh, this many times for this long. That we don't have that leisure in this one. So it, 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 then the question is, the causal and French frameworks that exist and the tools put out there, are they capable of taking on the big issues, taking on complex exposures, taking on cases where causal invariance is not a guarantee um, where things, where the system adapts very quickly to what you're trying to do. Um, what will those tools look like? How well do they perform in being able to give you answers and being able to help you do what you need to do? And I think that's what they're trying to get at. They're trying to get at, can you help us deal with the big items already? <laughs> um, because that's what we're dealing with. I mean, if COVID has shown us that um, we are in a very complex world, really interconnected, one where um, simple quantitative answers are difficult to come by, and when they come by, are not enough for action, are not enough for changes, they're not enough for the outcomes. And that's what social therapy does. You know, do that world, and you see how complicated that is? I mean, why are we in this moment? It's Juneteenth, happy Juneteenth, everybody. Mm -hmm. um, that's a perfect example also of where we haven't had the pleasure of interrogating those tools, pushing the tools to see how well they go. Will causal, the potential outcomes framework, for example, survive and survive a thoroughgoing social epidemiological application? That actually is the question. 
Yeah? If it can't, and a lot of public health is social epic, if not all, um, what value is the framework to us if we can't actually handle the big things that affect us through that framework? Um, fa those fantastic points. And so let me just end with, with one last question. And it's, it came up a couple of times from a couple of, of people who wrote in. Um, so one person said, is social epidemiology a substantial part of our educational curriculum in epidemiology in addition to methodology? And I would say it really should be part of, of, of all of our courses and it really isn't. But, the, but Stephen Gilman asks, uh, what aspects of social epidemiology should be required for all students in epidemiology in an epidemiology degree program. Uh, John, you wanna, do you wanna take that one? Yeah, um, you know, I, I think, um, I think two things I would say are one, um, social theory. Um, so, you know, um, there's a lot of different social theories out there, but, you know, I think like a full class on that would be really good to like help us think about why is risk distributed the way it is. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a lot, of um, theories that are out there. I think Nancy Krieger has a book on it, you know, that could probably be adapted really easily. Um, and I also think for me personally, I think equity is something that I think every student should take a full course on. I mean, everything from what are the ethical foundations of it? You know, how do you measure it? Um, why are there inequities along different lines? I think, you know, if we're really, I mean, I think if anything COVID has taught us is that, you know, we have to have equity as front and center in our thinking if we're really going to address public health issues. It's not something that, it's not an elective or something on the side. It has to be something really front and center in, in what we do. And so I think at least those two things are things that I would really hope that, you know, every student of epidemiology gets solid training on. On you, anything you would add? I agree, absolutely agree. Social theory, um, equity, uh, racism, uh, uh, as part of that, uh, um, social justice issues, sexism. You think about all those things that we do, that authorism that goes on and how that can kill and how that impacts our health. Um, I think you have to have that in there. Uh, but it, there's another part that we should have, and that, that applies not just to social epi, and that is measurement as part of theory measurement, conceptualization, yeah. what, what do we actually mean by this factor, especially social factors? How do we conceptualize the social? A lot of social factors are difficult to observe directly. They are felt, they happen to people and you're never privy to them. Um, and you know, um, the latent constructs. You know. So getting into the business of measurement is a big epidemiologic tool or training that should be had and focusing it on not just measuring biomarkers, but measuring social factors, all that I think will be a big deal. I think that's a social, any social epic training that we're going to mandate or make sure that people get as a foundation must have measurement. I think those are good point. Yeah, because also many people take measurement courses in you know, epidemiology training, you know, but it focuses on how do you develop a questionnaire and, um, you know, self-report biases. And, and these are undoubtedly important um, issues and, and, you know, real world 
problems that people have to deal with as epidemiologists, but thinking broader in terms of measurement would make uh, a tremendous contribution to our training programs, you know, not just what 12 questions should I put in and do in confirmatory factor analysis or, you know, something like that, but, but thinking bigger um, in terms of our, our questions that we're trying to answer, um, measurement underlies all of it. So I thought that was a great point to raise. Well, we unfortunately we're out of time, which is too bad because I could I could talk about this with you all for hours more. But I really want to to thank you both for 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 joining us, but also for the the commentary that you wrote, as well as the the commentaries by by uh, doctors Bailey and Robinson and and Galea and Hernan. Um, these are I think that um, you know reading these has really challenged me to better my understanding um, and to recognize that we need to integrate social epidemiology really into into all of our courses so um thank you again and uh, and sorry to the to the people who wrote in who i didn't have time to get to your questions but hopefully we will we'll answer those in future episodes i do want to just take a last minute to, to plug the the podcast that we're about to start so the this is part of our serious epidemiology podcast which we are actively um, uh, taping episodes of now and is going to start to come out in July. So be on the lookout for that. And this, this discussion will be part of that feed. So thank you all for joining us. Thanks for having thank us. You. Thank you for having us. Well, I hope you enjoyed that bonus episode of Serious Epidemiology. We will be back with another episode on the 15th of the month. <laughs>